Everyone, pull out a pen or pencil and something to write on, whether it's the back of your sermon notes or some sort of paper. Pull out something to write with and something to write on. I would like you to write two words on that paper. You'll see these on the screen in just a moment. The words on the left is us. The word on the right is God. So go ahead and get this in your paper. And I'm going to talk through an illustration about how God has worked and what we have been celebrating since this last week with Easter. So in the beginning, God created life. All of life is from God. He created humans, he created the earth, and it was all good when he created it. We had, on the second screen, you'll see we had a good relationship in four key areas. Go ahead and pull that up. We, have, we had four key relationships. We had a relationship with God that was good and not troubled. Originally, there was a relationship that we had with each other where we did not experience tension or dissension between people. We experienced the goodness in creation and how creation, we are in harmony with creation, and creation itself experienced unity and harmony and was not at all under the fall, what we now call the fall or the curse. And we had harmony within our own selves, within our own souls. God created all of these relationships to be in harmony, all of these relationships to be in unity. However, if you've been around church for a while, or even if you have been alive as a human being for any length of time, you know that these relationships are damaged today. And there was this thing that we call the fall, in which sin and death entered the world. And instead of us being on a direct path to God, we took a turn and went a different way from God. So humanity chose our own way over God's way, and at this point, sin entered the world. Anything that is not of God is sin, and anything that is not of God leads to death, because God is life, anything not of God is death. So at the, uh, go ahead and draw another section up there. This demonstrates the separation that happened with God when sin entered the world. Now at the bottom of this, in between those two chasms, at the bottom of that, write two words. Write the word sin and write the word death. Because God is life, and anything not of God leads to death. All of these relationships were then corrupted. Our relationship with God, we are separated by sin. Tensions arose in our relationships with each other. If, if you want to read more about that, read Genesis 1 through 3, and you read about how, how different tensions entered with people. Genesis 1 through 3 also talks about the, how, the, how sin affected creation and how creation is now fallen under the curse of sin. And even within our own selves, divided hearts within our own selves, all of our key relationships, sin messed up. And what God could have said was, well, that's how it goes then. These people are hopeless. That's how it's going to be, I guess. I guess we'll let it be. But he didn't do that. Because God so loved the world. He so loved the world that he sent his son so that whoever believes in him will not perish in sin and death, but will have eternal life. 
And so God, the Father, sent Jesus, Jesus the Son, as it to bridge the gap between us and God. Jesus becomes the path through which we can get to God and cross over the chasm of sin and death that otherwise separates people. You can see a little symbol under the cross on the left that is clearly a manger representing when the baby Jesus was born. I'm, I'm sure you could tell that from my artwork. But that's a manger representing how God the Son came to earth incarnate in human flesh. And he lived a life of holiness, and he did a life of ministry. He died on the cross, and it was by his death on the cross that he gave the ultimate sacrifice, and he took our sin properly to death on the cross. The only thing that sin can do is die, and Jesus brought it to death. He could have left it there, but he didn't. He came back to life. He resurrected from the dead, and that's what the crown represents, is the authority of Jesus over death. And he gives us the opportunity to raise us to new life so that we, too, can have new life. This is what we celebrate at Easter, the brokenness of these four key relationships, the need, the desire, the longing the creation that we were made for, to get to God, to connect with God in wholeness and in holiness, and the cross of Jesus as the bridge that brings the two together. All of these things are what Jesus did for us. But even though he did these things for us, we still need to respond to this gift. This past week was my son's 14th birthday, and he had some presents to open. And it would have been one thing if, if I would have given him his present. He, at, at, for us in our family, 14 is when you get your first cell phone. And so he was getting his cell phone, and he knew it was coming because we had lengthy conversations about it for about a year in advance he, and uh, all, all that. But, but, if, but I had it all wrapped up. I had it in a package, and I gave him the gift. I said, this gift is for you. But he would have never been able to experience the gift if he didn't open it, if he didn't receive it. What if he just left it in the packaging? It would still be there now. There'd be this gift that's available that no one's taking advantage of. And similarly, Jesus, we are offered the gift of rescue through Jesus, but it's ours to decide if we will open the gift or not. The gift of Jesus is received through faith. So draw a little arrow. It is through faith faith that we receive the gift of salvation from Jesus. This is the story of what God has done, just depicted in this visual sense. My question for you is, where would you put yourself, if you were to draw a little stick figure of yourself, where would you put yourself on this chart? Would you put yourself on the far left side, saying, I am not in relationship with God. I don't profess to be a Christian. I'm not saved, whatever you mean by that. And in fact, I would, on this little chart, this person's way over on the other end, and, and he's saying, I don't even really want to talk about it right now. Some people are, are in that position. All of us were in, in that position, most likely, at one time or another. You can see that there are those little vertical lines there. Those are hurdles 
things that, that hinder us or get in our way of crossing that line of faith. Things that have happened to us, disappointments we've had, things that don't make sense to us. Who, who knows? But those are hurdles of, of barriers that get in the way of us making that decision by faith. Others of us in this room might put ourselves on the far right side where we would say, by faith, I receive the gift of salvation. I have confessed that, I, that I've got sin and death in my life. I have confessed that I don't want it anymore. And I confess that I believe that Jesus is the only rescue for it. And by faith, I receive salvation. I, I, I put myself on the God side. I am saved. If that's you, go ahead and put yourself on that chart. Others of you might put yourself somewhere else on that chart, maybe a little bit more on, on the edge. I haven't crossed over that line of faith yet. I'm interested. I, I think I'm ready. I, I want it. But I haven't crossed over yet. And I want to ask you, I, I just want to pause here a moment and ask you to stop Look at the drawing that you have made for yourself. And if you haven't taken, if you haven't drawn up to this point, that's fine. Just imagine in your head, where would you put yourself? Just take a moment with you and God and process where you put your person. Go ahead and close your eyes and, and think about that right now. On the, on the left side, yeah, God, I'm, I'm not there, but I'm, I'm here and I'm searching and I'm wondering. On the far right side, thank you, God, for this gift. But I'd especially like to speak for a moment with, still with people's heads bowed and eyes closed, I'd still like to speak with you for a moment about those who would say that they're on the edge. Those who would say, I, I want it. I haven't gotten there yet. And my question for you would be, why not now? Why not today? I'd love to give you a chance even now to respond to this because I have a sense that if you have any sort of leaning or desire in this, then what that means is that the Holy Spirit is drawing this in you. The enemy, the devil, your own human flesh, that doesn't give you a desire to cross over by faith into salvation in Jesus. Any desire that you have is because it has been initiated by God's work in your life. And if you today are saying, you know, I've been on the edge of this, and I'm ready, I'm ready, now's my day. Now's my time. I just want to give you an opportunity right now in this worship service to do that. If that's you, would you just lift your head, lift your hand, and make eye contact with me a moment? And then I'd like to lead you in a prayer silently that you'll pray silently at your seat. Yeah. Lord Jesus, there are some here today who are saying, I haven't crossed over by faith. I want to be in a different place. God, I don't understand it all, but I hear you calling me, and by faith, I say yes. And if that's you and you're, you're praying this, take a moment and confess to God, I have sin in my life. Sin I haven't been able to fix. Sin that I know displeases you, God. God, I know that I am not holy. I confess that to you. And God, I turn from anything I can turn from right now, and I turn toward you. And I say, clean me up, God. Forgive me. And God, I ask you 
help me to receive your gift of salvation. Help me to open this gift. And I believe by faith. By faith I believe, Jesus, that you are my rescue, that you are my way. And if you prayed that to God or prayed something like that to God, if you asked Jesus to do those things in you and you repented and confessed, the word of God tells us that he will do what he says. That you are a son or a daughter of God and that your position with Christ has eternally changed now. And so God, we say thank you. Thank you for what you've done even in these moments. We recognize your work. We recognize you are calling out to us. We acknowledge your power of salvation and the power of resurrection. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Some people just put their faith in Jesus, church. I think you should give them a hand. Let's stay a minute on that slide. There are some today and other days who have crossed over from that position. There are others who would put themselves in this position who may or may not maybe should be in that position. So let, let me just explain this. I, I actually just went through this illustration a few times recently in the last few weeks with several people. And sometimes people put them, often people put themselves right here when I'm having spiritual conversations with them. Sometimes it is because people actually haven't put their faith in Jesus yet. And they're saying, I'm not a Christian. I haven't ever become a Christian, but I'm ready. And then we have that conversation. But a lot of times, this dynamic happens that I'm going to tell you about now. A lot of times, people put themselves on the chart here, and then they say to me, and then I say, okay, well, it sounds like today is the day you want to become a Christian. And then they'll say, well, actually, I am a Christian. And I'll say, well, why don't you put yourself on the God side then? And then they'll give some sort of reasoning that is something like, well, I'm not that good yet. I haven't quite gotten there yet. I'll, I'll move myself over there when I feel like I'm more of a Christian. And it's that particular dynamic that I would like to talk about today. The sense of confidence that we do or do not have as saved children, saved sons and daughters of God. I want you to know, church, that if you are a believer in Jesus, you can have confidence that you are saved and saved people who are on the God side, who are confident you are on the God side, I want you to have a greater confidence in what Jesus wants to do with you than I think what you maybe have so far. We're going to be looking at the epistle of 1 John. It is one of the last books in the New Testament. I invite you to open up your Bibles to the epistle of 1 John. An epistle is a letter. We're going to be studying 1 John over the next few weeks, and here are a few things I want you to know about it. It's only five chapters long. I would love for you to read 1 John on your own sometime in the next week or so, and just become a little bit familiar with what 1 John talks about. Now, John, 1 John was written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' apostles, who was also a cousin of Jesus, and the Apostle John writes in a form of writing called a, a called a, it's a, a form of rhetoric called amplification. It's a literary style. 
And so if you're reading through it, it doesn't read like it's, like it's all in an organized outline. It kind of cycles through major themes. So you read something, and then you read like a chapter and a half later, and you think, oh, he's saying the same thing, just with slightly different words. And then, oh, a chapter later, oh, he's saying the same thing again. And, and he has three di- major themes in the book of 1 John that he, he cycles through and comes back to repeatedly over a period of time. So if you feel like you're kind of reading the same thing in different words over and over again, you are. That's how the book of 1 John works. John has two major purposes in writing this short five-chapter letter. He wants people to know two things. He wants to know, first of all, how do we deal with sin once we're saved? Like, we're Christians. We thought that the sin part would go away. Well, our position with Jesus changed, but we still sin in, in how we live sometimes. And so how do we deal with sin? The second thing he wants us to know is how can we be sure that we are saved? How can we have confidence in our relationship with God? And over and over and over, he uses this phrase, this is how we know. This is how we know. This is how we know. If if you're wondering this, this is how you know. If you're wondering that, this is how you know. So in 1 John 3.10, he says, this is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. And then he goes on and he tells them, how do you know if you're a child of God or a child of the devil? Let's flesh this out. In 1 John 2, 5, he says, this is how we know that we are in him. If you want to know if you are in him, this is how you'll know that. 1 John 3, 19, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. If you want to know if you're part of truth or if you're not part of truth, then this is how you know. 1 John 3, 24, this is how we know that he lives in us. If you're wondering if God actually lives in you, this is how you know. This is how you can have proof. So over and over and over, if you circle the word know, K-N-O-W, you will circle it over and over and again in the the book of 1 John. John wants you to have confidence in your position and relationship with Christ. So why is he so concerned about this? Why does he care if we have a sense of confidence in our relationship or not. Now imagine a romantic relationship between people. If if one doesn't have confidence in the other, how is that relationship going to go? A little awkward, right? I had a funny interaction this week. Well, kind of funny. I had an awkward conversation this week, an awkward situation this week, in which my confidence in my fellowship with other Christians was a question. John wants us to be able to have fellowship confidence in our fellowship with God. Uh, My situation was I was working on a project for some of my seminary classes, and I had to go and observe, I had to go to another church, and I had to observe some different meetings and take some notes. So the first meeting I went, I had to go to three meetings. The first one I went to, I arrived almost 20 minutes early, and I got my stuff all set up. I set up my computer, greeted everybody, met met the pastors that were welcoming me there, and, and took my notes, did my thing, and it was good. The second meeting, I was about 10, 15 minutes early, and I showed up for that, and I, I had noticed previously that they were, they seemed very prompt at that first meeting, and uh, I thought, I'm just going to make sure that I'm early for the second meeting. So I was early for the second meeting again, got, uh, but got there and realized they weren't ready for me quite yet. They had a previous meeting that was still wrapping up before they were ready for me to come in. So that was fine. I just waited, and they started maybe five, seven minutes late. Well, by the third meeting, I thought, I've been, I've been doing so good at being early for these meetings, and I don't even know what happened. I, I don't know what I was doing, but as I'm driving there, I'm realizing, ah, 
I'm not going to get there on time. And I thought, well, not a big deal. Like they, they started a little bit late last time. I'm sure it's not a big deal. So the meeting was supposed to start at 9.30 in the morning, and I got there. I walked into the room at 9.32. Clearly, it was not okay that I was late. I walked in, and they were all sitting there waiting for me to start the meeting, and I, it was very, very uncomfortable. And I thought, it's 9.32. It's 9.32, but I guess this is a big deal. So I walked in. I apologized, and I went and sat down. I did not feel forgiven, and I, so I apologized again. And anyway, that's the extent of the story. But I sat there for just a few minutes at the beginning of the meeting thinking, oh, this is really uncomfortable. I do not feel like I have fellowship with, my, with these people right now. I don't have confidence in where I stand with them right now. There's this awkward, I, I didn't know my standing. I didn't know if I had, trans, I had apparently transgressed some law that I did not know existed. And, and so I, I felt awkwardness. I felt insecure in my fellowship with them. I think this same thing happens in our relationship with God all the time. We are not confident exactly where we stand with God because we know we did something kind of a little bit wrong. We know we did something that's a little bit off. We know that we should have done this, but we didn't. We did that instead. And, and it, it trips up our confidence. And so instead of coming in eager and ready and sure that everything's going to be great between us and God, we come in hesitant and questioning and wondering and just not sure where we stand with him. There's awkwardness in our fellowship. Why does it even matter? Can, can we just live in a lack of confidence in our relationship with God for our whole lives? I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of us are, are so used to feeling um, inadequate, incompetent, like a failure, not really accepted by God with ev- in who we are, that we, a lot of us live a lot of our lives like that. We're kind of just used to that. That's the, that's the nature of spiritual life. It's about shame. It's about putting down. It's about not measuring up. And, and we kind of think, well, that's the Christian life. I'll, I'll keep trying for holiness. I'll keep trying to get better. But I think our lack of spiritual confidence is a big problem. Because we feel unworthy of God, we have this, for those who are living in this space, because we feel unworthy of God, we have this kind of low-grade shame that we're just, we're bad Christians, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a sinner, saved by grace. I'm a, I'll just focus on the, on the sinner part. I think often we'll wallow in condemnation, where we feel condemned by sin. The Holy Spirit will always bring healthy conviction where it is, it is good and it is a gift of God to feel guilt and sorrow over sin. That is good. But condemnation is when the devil puts his foot on you and grinds you into the dirt. That's a little different. And so we need to learn to discern the difference between what is godly conviction that is the gift of this repentance that's a gift of god and what is the condemnation of the enemy when when we lack confidence with where we stand with god we uh, we have lower standards for our own holiness because we think oh it's absolutely impossible it's i don't have the confidence that god can make me holy it's absolutely impossible for god to make me holy and so we have lower and lower standards for ourselves and we accept our sins as normal and even necessary and that's just how it's going to be We have low expectations that God can do what we really need him to do. 
We are insecure. What does insecurity do? Insecurity always drives us into being self-absorbed. Insecurity always turns our attention on us rather than on God. But when we have confidence, we have confidence in our position with Christ. It allows us to look to open up our eyes and look outside of ourselves. When we're insecure, we're so focused on us that we never end up engaging in the missional ministry that God has called us to do. We never fully live the abundant life of being deeply loved, of being radically forgiven, of living in a constant stream and shower of God's grace. And in, we, don't, we don't live in a practice of confession and repentance. Being confident doesn't mean that you don't have to repent and confess anymore. Being confident means you've learned how to conf- confess and repent regularly and ongoing, and you understand that it's a regular part of your life. We can have confidence that we're in, in the process of being made holy by God's Spirit. So our lack of confidence, by having a lack of confidence in where we stand with God, it has a way of infiltrating at a very deep soul level. Now, I think the primary reason we lack confidence is we just don't know what to do with sin. It makes sense to us that when we cross the line of salvation by faith, it makes sense to us that there is something foundational that shifts, that there is a positional change that the sin, the sin nature that I was born in has been forgiven. That is true. But we have the question of, well, then why do I sin after I get saved? And what do I do with that? We're actually going to explore that in more detail on another week, but I'd like to briefly address it today. What do we do with that sin problem? 1 John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. Let me just say that again. If we claim to have fellowship with Jesus, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If you say you're a Christian, but you're walking in darkness, you're a liar. Verse 7, but... If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Where are you walking? How are you walking? Are you walking in darkness or are you walking in light? Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, verse 9, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Chapter 2, verse 1 continues, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John is talking here about 
habitual sin, habitual walking in darkness, habitual walking in light. And he says very clearly here, you cannot habitually live in sin. You can't be constantly walking in darkness. That's not okay. But he says walking in darkness and committing a sin are, are not the same thing. Walking in darkness is an ongoing, habitual life. Committing a sin is something that probably most of us do pretty consistently in our lives. These things are differently. He says, absolutely, you have to take sin seriously. But there's a difference between when you sin, you confess, you repent, you receive the atoning work of Jesus, and then you, keep, and then you proceed to walk in the light again. There's a difference between that and habitual living in sin that is unrepented of. He talks about how walking in the light regularly purifies you. He says in, ver- in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, if we walk in the light, then it says the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us. That's an active verb. The blood of Jesus, his son, is actively ongoing purifying us. As we walk in the light, it's actively purifying us. It's kind of like if you put out a piece of laundry in the sun, the sun will bleach it, and it will get whiter and whiter over time. As you walk in the light, you will be continually purified. You, will, you may sin, but you will be purified. In chapter 2, verse 2, It says Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the ongoing atonement. This means that when sin happens, what we... We, we don't just push it aside and say, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to wallow in my sin. I'm just going to kind of ignore that, and I'm just going to claim the victory. No, no, something before that. You confess it. You repent of it. And then you receive God's grace. And then you move on. That's what walking in the light looks like. Church, I think that we are not good at practicing regular confession and repentance. We think that's something I do at salvation, or it's something if I do something really bad, but how much healthier will we be if we learn practices and pra- regularly practice confession and repentance? That is the way that we stay walking in the light. Let's not have it be some special circumstance. Let's let the Holy Spirit examine our hearts. Let's confess sin regularly. This, this is a spiritual breathing, an exhaling of our sin, and an inhaling of the, of the, of the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is how we walk in light. Often sin, sin is the reason for our lack of confidence. We, we get stuck in it. We don't confess it. We don't pre- repent of it quickly enough, and we hang on to it. And so then we start to lose confidence. Where am I with God? And things get muddled. We often don't realize how bad it is, so we don't deal with it. And we often don't realize how good God it is, so we don't deal with it. The devil wants to keep you insecure, unconfident, unsure where you stand with God, questioning the authority that you have as a son and daughter of God, questioning your ability to have power to overcome evil in this world. He wants to keep you as weak and as wavering as much as he can possibly. John, by contrast, in the book of 1 John is saying, this is how we know. I want you to know where you stand with God. I want you to know you can confess your sin and be forgiven. I want you to know that you can walk with Jesus. I want you to know the power that is available to you. Here are a few passages that that are examples of this. In 1 John 3.10, 
John says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. And in wondering, how do you tell the difference between children of God and children of the devil? Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Do the right thing, love other people. 1 John 2, verses, verses 5 and 6. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Obedience. 1 John 3.18 Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. So I told you that John writes in this cyclical kind of writing style. So these are just samplings of the same thing he's seeing over and over and over again in this book. Let's go back to our main passage for today and continue on in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. John is going to say, here are two ways that you can know that you are in fellowship with God. Two proofs to know that you are in fellowship with God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. How do you know that you've come to know Jesus? If you what? Obey what? Yes, and, and whose commands are we obeying? God's. And how, what, what are we supposed to obey again? His commands. Where are his commands located? How can you find them? And, and how do you know what commands are in the Bible? You have to read it, right? Hey, I'm just going to say something real quick. I think a lot of us think we know what God's commands are, but we're pulling it out of nowhere. We've got to read the Bible and find out what God's commands actually are because we make up stuff that we think is like God. We make stuff up. Go to the Bible, read the Bible, get in your Bibles. This is how we know what his commands are. Proof that you are in fellowship with God is obedience to his commands. Obedience. It means you, you, try, you live differently. It does not mean you pray a magic prayer and you go on living however you want. It means you pray a prayer of confession, and then you repent, which means you turn, and then you learn how to live, and the Holy Spirit helps you, and there's something new that happens. We sometimes miss that part. How you live matters. Saved people, people on the God side, how you live matters. Are you walking as Jesus walked? Let's continue. First John chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. I love this next part. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. You want proof that you have fellowship with God? Obey him. Obey his commands. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, it reads, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. We don't have time to dig into this today, but a few things that might be helpful is sometimes the world calls hate what God calls love. And sometimes what we think of as love is hate. And so it is imperative that we go by scriptural descriptions of what love and hate are. It is imperative that we go by scriptural understandings of what an enemy is or is not. We, we had a time of prayer recently for Patrick Leoya. We, had a, we called an all-church time of prayer when the videos of his death were released. And one of the several things that we prayed for in that prayer time was we prayed for those that we perceive as enemies. And the wording of that included the word perceived because one person's enemy is not another person's enemy. And we, we didn't just pray for this group and that group, for this person and that person. We actually, my group at least, when we were praying, we prayed for about six or seven different groups of people, all who could be perceived in some way as somebody's enemies in this situation. Because the Bible tells us to pray for those pray for our enemies, to do good to those who despitefully use us. So as Christians, our love and our fellowship with God is demonstrated in our attempts and practices at loving our enemies. Jesus says, in fact, this passage isn't even talking about loving your enemies. It's talking about, or this passage isn't even talking about hating your enemies. It's talking about hating your brother. So this is a, this is a different thing. But anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother, you're in darkness. You need to examine what you hate. You need to examine where there's a lack of love. Proof number two that you are in fellowship with God is love. Love of others. This is what holiness is. When God makes you holy, he makes you perfect in love. He makes you love more. He makes you love differently. He makes you love according to his standards in biblical, scripturally defined ways. That is what love is. Those are the true proofs. Our obedience to his commands and our love of others. That's how we know we have fellowship with God. And so here's my questions for you. What happens if you do have confidence in God. What happens if, if you do? If you have confidence in God, then you can accept the fact, I'm not worthy. You know, every, everybody, there's this saying right now about, you know, I, I'm enough. You're, you're not enough. Quit believing social media that says you're enough. You are not. That's why we have Jesus. We have Jesus to be enough. And, and being in a place of confidence with God is having the confidence to say, I am not enough, but God in me does what I need. Having confidence with God means we can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the time in which we can, we can come to God, we can pray, we can approach his throne, and we can know he will hear us because he will give us mercy. 
Confidence is understanding there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is beautiful and good and necessary, but the condemnation of the devil is done. Confidence means we no longer habitually go on sinning because we've died to sin. Confidence means that we learn the secret of being content in all situations because we know where we are with Jesus and we trust him and we know who he's made us to be. It means that we can live in the security of being treasured as sons and daughters of God. It means that we live in the power of God and we do not live in human power. We are so often stuck at that place and that bridge illustration because we think that our human power isn't good enough yet when in reality God says, you're not ever going to be good enough, so let my power be your power and let the resurrection power that was at work in me be in you. That's what happens when we have confidence, we can allow God's power to come out instead of squelching it, instead of rejecting the gift. When we have confidence, it means not about us just having our own self-centered, self-assured rootedness. It means that we are yielded and that we delight in our weakness because in our weakness, he is made strong. Confidence means that we are in a position of in, of delighting in the weaknesses that God has given us because it is through that that we see the beauty of his salvation and his restoration in our lives. When you realize that God does all this because he loves you, it, it changes everything. God didn't have to make a way through Jesus for us to get to him. God could keep you cowering in fear. God could keep you stuck with a, in, a lack of confidence because he's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big, powerful God, and I do big things, and you should have some awe of me. It's not his way, church. It's not what he does. This kind of love that God has for you can change everything. He wants you to be rooted in his love. He wants you to be rooted in practices of confession and repentance and the scripture says repent then and turn to god that your sins may be wiped out so that times of refreshing may come from the lord he doesn't want you just to grovel he wants to refresh you and make you new he doesn't want you to reject his love it pains god when we push away the gift it pains god when he hands us the gift and we say i'm not opening it it pains god when he he's offering us holiness and his power and his goodness and his mercy and we say no i am too bad i can't receive it he wants you more than anything to live into this new life that he's making possible for you what does it take faith it takes faith to have the confidence that he wants to make you whole and holy god's deepest desire is that you'll receive his gifts. Not in your own way, not according to what you have on your gift list, but according to the gifts he has for you. Our confidence does not rest in our worthiness, in our wisdom, in our intelligence. Our confidence doesn't rest in our goodness. Our confidence rests on the gift of God. And so, Lord God, we come to you today and we pause for a moment and say, that's your love. 
for me. God, where, where I'm weak, where I'm insecure, help me to receive your confidence. Church, maybe you need to confess something to God right now. This sin, this thing that makes you feel so unworthy, this thing that you think is the thing that keeps you from being holy. Just silently confess that to God right now. Holy Spirit, examine our hearts. Confess that to God. And then repent. Tell God, I'm, I'm turning away from that, God. Maybe some of you would even say, I've turned away from this before. I'll turn again. And I'm going to keep turning. And I'm going to keep turning until there's freedom. Confess and repent. And if you've prayed those things, pause for a moment. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? What is the Holy Spirit offering to you? What does he say about your identity? What does he say he will do with that confession that you made? Jesus, we believe that you are our redemption for sin. And that walking in the light looks like experiencing your ongoing atonement, this light that is purifying us as we walk in your light. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for loving us so much in that kind of way. Because the promise you made when you came to earth was that life could be radically different. Make it so, Jesus. Make it so. Change us. Change our families. Change our marriages. Change our vocations. Change our children. Change our friends. Do your work in us, Jesus. Change us. In your name we pray. Amen. Will you please